Best Book Beats podcast brings you Joel Promise, father, husband, entrepreneur, mediocre meditator, wannabe farmer, tag-along hunter, first-time filmmaker, former athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. Joe, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Good to be here with you today. No worries. Now, did I miss anything in that uh, little intro? No. <laughs> no, I think that the boat covers me. <laughs> No, no problem. So first off, I just want to say uh, congratulations. Uh, you've had your third child. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, no, we uh, we had a baby at home on the farm. My wife is like 90 pounds. So she gave pound to a nine pound baby. So just a remarkable feat on her part at home in the bathtub. So we're, we're wow. proud and tired parents right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's your that's your third child. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, you've got two, right, mate? Yeah, I got two. Yep, I got yeah, two. So I know, I know what it feels like. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. But uh, what I want to do for my audience that don't know who you are, um, you, you've done quite a lot in your career and we'll, we'll get through that as well. But yeah, take us back to the, the teenage Joel. Uh, what were you dreaming of becoming while you were a teenager and uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town uh, just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, familiar with the area. Have you been uh, to Vancouver before, Michael? No, I haven't. No, I'm from Melbourne, no. Australia. Not Canada yet. Yeah, I haven't been to Canada yet. I, Vancouver's, I mean, the joke is that all the Aussies come to Canada for the snow and they never they never leave. There's a there's a town called Whistler and it's just packed with, with Australians. So I, I grew up a little bit away from that. Uh, the, the good life, as I say, you know, getting dirty, walking to school at five years old and uh, and not coming home until the dinner bell rang, so to speak. But, you know, that was my youth. And then I got real bloody serious when I became a teenager and I realized that I was good at, at running. And I, uh, I, I became incredibly singular focused that everything dropped out of, oh, wait, you know, I, the pursuit of girls, partying, all those things that I wanted, like the natural stuff that we want as, as young, young people's growing up into, into our bodies and into adulthood, I just like pushed it all aside and said, the only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be a runner and I'm going to represent Canada in the Olympics. And I got pretty far, um, in that journey, I ended up representing Canada at the world championships, uh, ended up on a full ride athletic scholarship, uh, but then I blew up my Achilles and, eventually all of that came crashing down and I had to rediscover myself outside of running. Um, you know, I may be too far ahead, Michael, but that's, that's really the gist of it. I was, I was a, I was a boring kid. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to run fast and far and beat people. <laughs> no, that's understand. Yeah. I, um, I hate running by the way, but that's okay. It's, it's not for, it's not for everyone. Um, yeah. Talk us about sort of after you did the injury, you took some odd jobs, uh, bartending, landscaping and travels. Um, is that correct? And, and where did you go on your travels when you, um, when you finished up with school? There's this like you've probably felt it, you know, I mentioned all the Aussies coming over here. And I think that there's this rite of passage where young people trying to find themselves need to kind of escape. And they think that the answers are all elsewhere. They are, they're all out there floating around in the world. And, and there's a lot to be learned. But all of that stuff just teaches you that the answers were inside of you. And so I, I became this kind of free-flowing vagabond where I, you know, because I, I couldn't stand 
mate, like I could not stand when people would ask me, how's the running? Because I wasn't running anymore after I'd blew up, blown up my Achilles and eventually I lost my scholarship and I, I lost my place on Canada's world team. I had so much insecurity around it um, that I couldn't face it. So part of going away was I needed to escape that so that I could have a moment to just like not have to answer those questions and lie because I would lie. Um, and I'm not proud of it, but I, I, I would literally just say it's fine. I wouldn't say I'm not a runner anymore. So I ended up hitchhiking across the country. <laughs> I just like, I couldn't afford anything. So I walked out my front door, stuck out my thumb, uh, hitchhiked across the country, ended up in Thailand. Uh, once I got to the other side of Canada and, uh, and came back and worked odd jobs while I was trying to, trying to figure out what was going to be next. Because for so many of us, even though the the thing that you were doing is gone, there's still that that void of, well, who am I in the face of this world and how do I show up? And so I really thought that entrepreneurship was that answer, but I didn't know how to do it. So I just, I was in, I ended up in Peru and I bought this pair of underwear from a street vendor and I thought, well, this is better than any of the shit my mom ever bought me. And I, I came home with this idea that I was going to start an underwear line. And that, it was literally that, that crazy. Like it was, there's the underwear in my mind. I'm going to start an underwear line. And next thing you know, I'm standing on national, uh, on stage and on national TV, pitching this idea to drag, uh, to five dragons. They call it the dragon's den and absolutely getting torn to shreds, Michael. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks. for Yeah. I've, uh, I've watched the episode and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite cool, but yeah, let's take us back. So you're at a night market in Peru and you, um, you bought some underwear and all of a sudden you put them on. You thought, oh my God, these are something I've never experienced before. They didn't, they didn't chafe. And then you went back to your, um, went back to your apartment in British Columbia on the dining room and you co-founded, uh, Naked. So for those who don't know what, what is Naked, the, the company in 2008 and, uh, what, what happened next? So Naked, what I tried to do was I tried to make a pair of underwear that felt like you couldn't feel it. Hence the name naked. It was so comfortable you couldn't feel it. The irony of it was because I didn't know how to make underwear. And I didn't, I wasn't like sitting there sewing the underwear myself. You know, we had factories and stuff like that. But um, because I didn't know what I was doing, I, I was able to get some love money investors into the, into the company before I'd even made any product. And when I shipped them the product after I'd made the first batch and I'd used all of their money, like a hundred bloody thousand dollars, you know, and at the time that seemed like a lot of money. And I get a call and one of the investors says to me, I know why you call it naked. It's like, because it falls off when you wear it. And I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And it was like the way I had designed it with all the elasticity, it literally just shot off guys' bodies. And I had, I had spent a hundred grand. I, I didn't even check it. And so as soon as I began, I was reeling in the survival mode, but we, we got a second chance and, you know, investors said, okay, you've learned a very painful and expensive lesson. And I, and it was painful. It took sort of five years to undo, but eventually the company, we made great men's underwear, women's underwear, uh, sleep or loungewear. It, uh, it was in every major department store of the United States. We moved to New York. We raised over $20 million and, um, partnered with, you know, celebrities, NBA superstar Dwayne Wade. And eventually 
we were bought by a company in Australia called Bendon Lingerie. And, uh, well, Bendon was, I guess, is more New Zealand than it is Australia. But uh, that was in 2018. And, and uh, that was the end of that ride for me. 10 years of, <laughs> of something I never expected I'd have. That's awesome. I've got two questions for you I want to unpack. And yeah, thank you for sharing the story. Um, number one is when you first had the idea that you wanted to create an underwear line, what was the first thing? Um, and I know your partner, Alex, as well, you can talk about him, but was it let's get straight to funding? So, or like, do we make a pair first? Like, what was the stage of getting that first initial funding? How did you do it? Like, what was the process behind that? If you can remember that going back. I remember it vividly. I think we all remember our very first fundraise. If you've ever done it, it's so human. It's so like, you have to have so much humility because you just getting rejected all the time. Right. And some people are nice about it. And it's like asking out every girl at the party and nobody's saying yes, like it's that kind of thing, but you just got to keep doing it. And, uh, and that's what it was like for me. I was working at, so I had eventually created one prototype, one, uh, one package. And at this time I didn't know anything about creating a capitalization table, financials, projections, market comparables. I didn't know any of that stuff, right? It was pure blue sky idea, right? There's a hole in men, the hole in the men's underwear business. I'm going to fill that hole with naked underwear, but I didn't actually know what that, what that equated to from a dollars and cents standpoint. But a lot of people just loved the name so much. And I'd maxed out two credit cards to buy that name off of somebody who owned it. So now I own, I own this trademark. I have no business. I have one pair of underwear and I'm just out there. I'm working at a newspaper selling ads and I literally bring this pair of underwear to me because in my head, I think, well, if these people own businesses, they must have some cash I'm selling them ads for the newspaper. And so I would literally at the end of my ad sales pitch, I'd bring out the underwear and I would, uh, and I'd pitch them on that. And I actually got, uh, a handful of my investors came through that. And so I started with money first before I launched into inventory. Um, and everything was fake it, right? Like I, I ended up going to the number, you guys have David Jones in Australia. We have Holt Renfrew here. And I ended up flying out to Holt Renfrew and just literally camping out until they gave me, you know, the time of day for a meeting and, uh, and getting the product in there. But today I do it a lot differently. You know, I wouldn't start with that much love money. I think love money is really dangerous. Um, it's not a bad thing, but I lost a lot of people. Well, I shouldn't say in that deal, I have lost people's who I love's money in companies and that never feels good. Right. You know, cause not every company works. And I'm very hesitant to go down that road. And, uh, and so, you know, now today, you, you probably know, know all this, Michael, there's so many different mechanisms to finance a company and more importantly, prove out your concept because I wouldn't even waste my time today with a concept that I didn't think had market viability and had already proved that to some degree. Because there's so many more entrepreneurs creating products 
You can be an Amazon entrepreneur. You can be a TikTok entrepreneur. You can be, you know, your products on Shopify. The barrier to entry of anything is incredibly low, but it's exponentially harder to scale because there's so many players in the field. When I was doing it, it was still the buyers controlled that stores. They controlled the outcome of your fate initially, right? This is pre-selling stuff online. And so, you know, it's like dip your toe in the water with an idea. If something nibbles, go a little further. Uh, and, and, and so that's how I always advise entrepreneurs today. They always ask me, you know, should I go raise the money? I'm like, no, go prove your concept. And then maybe go raise some love money. But even VCs and, and uh, angel investors are so inundated with opportunity that they're very selective these days. And they, it's an incredibly competitive space. We just went through an angel, uh, I guess you could say an angel circuit, if you will. And I mean, you started at the top of the funnel with 500 companies. And even to be able to pitch those angels, you have to go through three or four levels of pitch competitions. It's very, it's, it's, it's time consuming and it's expensive. So you really got to have, you, you know, know that there's something there. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, yeah, totally makes sense. And, um, some of the things I got from there was uh, proof of concept. If you don't have proof of concept, you might be a great salesman and you might be good in, you know, pitching to investors, but it's not what you say, it's what you can prove. And at the end of the day, you know, proving is, is bigger than what you can say. Um, I want you to sort of tell us a story about how um, when you and Travis appeared on CBC's Dragon's Den and then followed that up with a second, second chance episode. What was that experience like and, um, you know, getting all that exposure on, on TV in the early days? Yeah, I will asterisk what I just said before with if you're just passionate about what you want to do, well, then it it's a lifestyle business. It's not, a, I need to scale this with investor money. But if you're trying to scale something, then you really do need to prove it out. Uh, and, you know, again, you know, a cart before the horse is always, I, I'm always the type of person who jumps in um, without asking a lot of questions. And that was Dragon's Den. You know, we got a, we got a, they heard, they heard because my aunt worked for CBC as a sales rep, she had mentioned it. And they called right away and it's like, you know, we, I do, I'm sweating my ass off in my car. Cause I wasn't expecting it. It's like, you know, it's like 30 degrees outside. I'm in my car doing this interview and she's essentially pretending the producer's essentially pretending to be the dragon running me through the ropes and saying like, well, what about this? What about this? And I'm just like, you know, pulling answers out of the orifices, the deepest orifices in my body. And at the end, she's like, yes, you can come on stage, but you need to take your clothes off. And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, it's TV at the end of the day. <laughs> I'm like, so you're saying everything I just pitched you, I have to do naked on television. And so that's what ended up happening was we ended up going there and there's like this X on the, on the center of the stage and you're not allowed to leave the X. And so we go there and we stand and we got this idea and we're like, let's just get naked. And we take off our clothes and we're wearing the underwear and models come out and it's all laughs and giggles and everyone's happy until they ask us what, you know, how many sales we've done. And the answer is zero. <laughs> and I get called delusional that I have no clue. And, and honestly, he was right, but I wasn't afraid. The interesting difference, you know, courage is like when you have courage you're facing an enemy you already know and so the first time i was just arrogant and i was like i'm gonna rock it and i got 
my ass handed to me. The second time I was terrified because I know what I'd gone through the first time and we had sales and we actually got an offer, but the offer that we were given, uh, we'd already uh, talked to our shareholders and they had said no to that offer. If this, if this offer comes through, which they had said 50% of the business for $250,000, which was probably reasonable. And our answer was 30%. And, um, that was the farthest our investors would go. So I knew I couldn't make another deal, but man, on that second chance show, I just wanted to say yes, just to have that like moment, you know, where it's like, oh, we're all shaking hands and hugging and then deal with the consequences later of having done a deal I can't do. Yeah, you're lucky you probably didn't do that because it all worked out in the end. Um, what I want you to unpack for me, talk about the thought process on partnering with Carol in 2014 and getting someone on board to be the CEO and COO. What was that like and um, how did that all trend, sort of transpire? Yeah, Carol was a uh, uh, just an, an industry legend. I, I mean, if you're in the lingerie sleepwear industry, you know who Carol Hockman is. And I, there's there's... Are you familiar with imposter syndrome, Michael? Oh, of course. Yeah, we all go through it every day. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, uh, I, you know, I have maybe a different take on it now these, these days, but then I, I wasn't even, I was not only was I suffering with feeling like an imposter in the company where I have, I've got millions of dollars that I've raised thousands of shareholders. I'm public, I'm a publicly traded company. And so I don't know how to do any of that. I'm learning it on the fly, but I also am learning, still learning the apparel industry on the fly. And so not only did I feel like an imposter, but a part of me deep in my gut said, you owe it to your shareholders to find somebody who knows what they're doing uh, to run this company. You've taken their money. You've already lost it a couple of times. Uh, not lost it as in they'd sold their stock and lost out. Just, you you know, the product that fell off was a waste of all the first tranche of financing. And, and so I felt very torn as because, you know, you're giving up control of something you care deeply about in that situation. But I, I knew it was the right thing to do. And having done it, you know, what took about a year and a half to find her specifically. She wasn't the first door I knocked on. Um, she's not a door, <laughs> but you know, the first place I, I went. And, and so about a year and a half later, we finally crossed paths and got this deal done. And then I felt really good about it, but I struggled immensely and I loved her dearly. And I, and I was very grateful to have her leading the company, but I struggled immensely being in the company and not running the company. And having to let go of decision making um, and all those and all those different things. I mean, she was a gem because I was a nightmare. I I was I was a nightmare. We we had just had you know our, our, a kid and a second kid, and we were young parents, and we had to move to New York, which is exciting and great. But you've uprooted your wife from her support network and yourself, and now you're in a new company. And I floundered. Like I would be a lie to say anything else. I was not my best self. And I look back and say, she was a very patient person to deal with me through all of that. Yeah. And talk about, um, talk about the going public on the NASDAQ and uh, what was that experience like uh, for yourself? That would have been a, a great day. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I will always say that they, they are great days. They're like, you know, it's like taking drugs, like not that I'm condoning it, but it's a hit of massive dopamine. But in reality, everything leading up to it and everything immediately after it was a chaotic nightmare. Uh, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, uh, you know, there's a huge list of compliance measures that you have to, to meet to go public on the NASDAQ. And, um, and you know, in the 11th hour, you find out, well, one thing's fallen out of the sink. Like just a, just a brief story that I didn't put in the book was that you have to keep your stock price at a certain level to, for a 10 day period prior to an uplisting. And if it goes below that period, uh, or that price, you, you, your, your 10 days resets, right? So shareholders who are unhappy or want to liquidate their stock for whatever reason, know that you have to keep maintain a certain price threshold. So the selling pressure starts coming in as we come into that 10 day window, that look back period, where we're having to find hundreds of thousands of dollars on top of the millions we've raised, we're having to find on a daily, hourly, minute to minute basis, up until that market closes every single day, hundreds of thousands of dollars in buying to come in to support the selling because they just want to sit on that bid and, and trying, you know, if the, if the price is four bucks, they're going to try and bid at 399 because they know you're going to come and try and take it and then, you know, walk it up again. So it was incredibly stressful. I got so sick afterwards, um, but it was a magical moment. And, and I did feel, you know, really proud of, of that journey. Unfortunately, the company, you know, I said afterwards, this happens a lot of the time after you uplist or you IPO, you know, the market comes out a little bit beneath you and you're, and you start, start having to battle depreciation and what you thought the company was valued at versus what the market is. But, but that said, I have come to, originally I hated it. I hated being public and I hated the whole thing. Um, because I, it was just so painful, but in hindsight, and now I, I really see the capital markets as a fantastic tool to finance even small businesses, which is sort of counterintuitive because they're, they're more costly. But when, when it comes to really when you're a public company, for those of your listeners who may be faced with, you know, this consideration, there's a lot of Aussie companies and European companies who want to list on the junior markets, not just the NASDAQ. And, uh, there's, you have two currencies, you have the cash in your bank account and you have the, you have the currency of the stock that you hold and that at extra currency provides so many more mechanisms to finance a company initially and ongoing. So I have found in certain private companies that I've, you know, either been a founder of or just been a part of. Your, your, your road to financing is very singular. There's, a, there's only, almost singular, there's only a certain amount of ways and there's a lot of gatekeepers. But in the public markets, there's so many different ways that I really encourage companies to, to look at it with open eyes and, um, and as a tool to do something you may not otherwise be able to do in the private sector.
Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people take some value uh, out of that as well. I want to fast forward quite a bit because I want to get up to sort of what you're doing now and sort of some of your stuff. So fast forward to sort of 2018, uh, you merged uh, uh, with the Australian company as well. Um, talk uh, just to touch on that. What was that like? And did you uh, end up exiting the company or are you still involved or how does it work? They are a uh, an electric car company now. <laughs> Uh, again, I talk about, I hope I'm not geeking out too much on uh, capital markets for you, Michael, am I? <laughs> no. um, so Bend and Lingerie bought us and, um, and it was done in, in a reverse merger where we're the company on NASDAQ. They're the bigger company, but they take us out and we disappear. We're gone. Right. Um, and and so that was a, that was a bit hard to swallow because they actually sold naked almost instantly uh, after they bought it. The, my thing now they owned Heidi Klum, Stella McCartney, Elle McPherson, yeah, Elle McPherson, um, and uh, you know a bunch of namesake brands in Australia. So it wasn't if they just didn't actually end up seeing any value in naked underwear. They saw value in our Nasdaq listing. Right. So we go back to saying, what's the, the currency? Well, the currency for them was the, the listing, right? Because that enabled them to have access to the capital markets and stock to acquire bigger, bigger brands than we were. But I, I at that point was so exhausted of it that I, I didn't mind. They asked me to consult for a year. Unfortunately, during that year, uh, Naked lost over $250 million of value in the capital markets, mostly due to selling of selling off of, you know, stock positions and just a bunch of false starts. Because if you don't know how these markets work, it can, they'll punish you for it. Right. I know it's kind of contradictory to the sales pitch I just made for utilizing, you know, utilizing the markets, but there's also a very big difference between the full blown NASDAQ and the junior markets um, that I was referring to. So anyway, in that, so I am now a consultant to the company I founded that has been acquired whilst over the course of a year, we lose $250 million in value. And every single phone call I get is a nasty one. Every single email I get is a nasty one. Nobody's at fault here. Everyone's working their asses off trying to make this thing go. And we just can't get ahead of ourselves. So at the bottom of that market, I sold and what was at many points, you know, worth seven figures um, in terms of my stock position by the time I sold was worth 2000 bucks. So it was not, it was not the, the deal that, that made me, you know, a wealthy man. It was uh, the deal that made me wealthy in knowledge and experience and connections. And that's, and that was okay. What's interesting was when I was launching the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm very loosely involved at naked at this time. And when I'm launching the book, did you, did you follow Michael or did you see any of like the wall street bets stuff with a GameStop and all of that? Or oh, I, I, a little bit of it, but no, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't have the acumen enough to talk deeply about it, but I know of it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So essentially what happens is all these walls, all these Reddit traders in these message boards decide to pick a bunch of stocks 
that they're going to go screw Wall Street on and force. And these are heavily shorted stocks, right? So they're going to squeeze the shorts out of these stocks. And um, Naked is like 70 or 80% shorted at this point, right? Because it's just had such a disastrous run and it's hanging on by the thread of threads. And because it gets roped into this GameStop saga and Wall Street bets versus Wall Street, the thing takes off like a rocket ship and goes up to $500 million in value naked as I'm launching the book. And I'm getting phone calls from CNN, New York Times, um, all wanting me to in, to opine on this. And I'm like, I can't, I'm not involved in the company anymore. And, uh, and they're like, well, can you just like reflect on it from the outside? And I'm like, well, no, because I, it would be completely unethical and unprofessional of me to do that. But it was, so it was exciting and it was painful to watch that happen side by side, the book launch when the two things like look like they're connected. Is it after you sold the stocks or before? After. The Wall Street thing was after I sold my stocks. Wow. So you had so no, they up, you had no hat in the ring. You had no hat in the ring, hat in the ring, economically speaking. None. And uh, it, honestly, it, Michael, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because they had they had raised $250 million. Um, so it was diluted even further. And they, um, but they, anyway, long story short, they ended up selling all the assets out of Naked. So no underwear, period. And it just got reverse merged into an electric car company. So <laughs> there you have it. There's the capital markets for you in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I didn't know that we we're going to get in that path. But uh, what, what is that electric car company now, by the way? Anyway, what's it called? I think it's called Centro Electric. I think okay, that's what cool. it's called. Well, and we'll and that's, I mean, yeah, like, again, there's, there's a whole tutorial we could do on, you know, why that was a good thing for them why they did what they had to do so so let's talk about the the book uh it's uh is it called uh, getting naked is that correct yep it is sir what, what year did it come out and um yeah talk a little bit about uh what happened after the book came out but getting naked came out in january of uh 2020 january 2020 i think or 21. I can't even remember the last two years that we've been through as a human race are a bit of a blur, but that had been a 10 year project. And I, the thing got written, rewritten four times, you know, from start to scratch. Uh, and, uh, really the message, you know, of the book for me was that entrepreneurship is a journey of self-discovery and you use the experiences that you have, the challenges, the hard times, the, the just the terrible days <laughs> as ways of becoming a better version of yourself, a really stripping away the bad in yourself, the reactionary, the anger, the things that are causing you anxiety and using it to look in the mirror and get back to your your real authentic self and what really matters in life. And that was sort of the double entendre of getting naked for me was building this company naked, but the journey of coming back to who I was. And that one for me was, I, I almost lost my marriage 
in the company, as is not an uncommon story for entrepreneurs. And uh, I, I almost lost myself in the sickness and in the bad habits that I developed. Unhel- very unhealthy, not you know, not just drinking, but you just fly so close to the sun sometimes. You know, living in New York or anywhere as as sort of this seemingly high flying entrepreneur that you think you are, and how fleeting all of that is, and then realizing that all of it didn't matter, and and that realization came to me, sadly, through the death of one of my best friends who had two girls, similar ages to my two girls. And I was in Texas at the time on a trip when I found out that he had, he had passed and he had a heart condition. It was not, it was unexpected, but it was not, I mean, I think he knew more about what was going on for him than anybody else did. He'd never even told me he had a heart condition. Didn't know him for 15 years. Um, and it was just shattered, shattered me. And I, I knew I needed to build my foundation in, in, you know, loving relationships and presence, not constantly in the pursuit of notoriety being seen in the eyes of others, money and and all that different stuff. And this is pre selling naked, right? This is sort of happening along the way. So that's really what the book becomes is it, it becomes more about that personal journey you're on as an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a, it's a touching story. And uh, for those who haven't read the book, I, I tell you to go out there and buy it and read it. It's a, it's a fantastic tale. Um, I want to sort of talk about your documentary filmmaking and traveling with uh, your wife and two kids as well. Uh, where did you go? Um, is the documentary out that, that you created? I sort of couldn't really find it uh, too much. <laughs> you want to talk, talk about that? <laughs> couldn't really find it. Fortunately, <laughs> it's not out, so that's why you couldn't find it. But if, <laughs> if it was out, then you would have been. <laughs> oh god, I feel like an idiot. Oh my god, where is no, that? it's it's yeah. all good, man. Um, there, you know, there's this continuation. I don't know how you feel about this, Michael. I don't, I don't know much about you. I know you have you know successful podcasts, and I love your website and and your ability to, you're a fantastic interviewer, but. I don't know if you've ever seen in your life where the, the dots connect in different ways than maybe or you thought they would. And Steve Jobs talks about this, but, but they always connect. And, and this film for me was one of those things where I had actually, after going to Thailand and when I was in Peru, I was filming a documentary with my brother and we went from Mexico all the way down to Chile. And then my brother felt like the project was quite disingenuous and it was sort of taking him out of the, uh, the traveling itself because he was always you know, filming and stuff like that. And so that project just kind of disappeared. Um, and I never wanted to let it go. And Cam, who I mentioned, my friend who, who passed away, he was an avid traveler. And when he passed, my wife and I said, you know, we need to take our kids traveling and just life's short. Who knows? Right. Look, I, I had been in hospital twice with, because of naked burning me out. And, uh, so we just decided that we were going to make this, do this trip, but we decided to film it and dedicate it to cam. And it was sort of a pickup from what my brother and I had done. And, and the world at the time, you know, we started filming in 2016 again. And, you know, you go on the news and it talks about the year of fear and terrorist attacks in Paris and Spain and 
Istanbul and all these different things. And, and we're like, part of it was, well, are we going to teach our kids that the world is scary? And, you know, we should look at everybody like, you know, with a, with an eye of doubt and, and, and fear or, or open arms of love. And, and so that became the message. It took a long time to do because of all that was going on with naked, but we ended up going to, uh, Beirut, uh, Vietnam, Colombia, Argentina, the Yukon, which is up North and like way up North in Canada and Taiwan. And, uh, and we just finished it last year or sorry, not last year, right. When the pandemic began is when we finished. Um, it's, it's done editing and it has just, I just signed as of the recording of this, a, a shopping agreement. So it is now going out to be shopped to studios and networks of which I, you know, I have no idea what will happen. Maybe you won't be able to find it ever, <laughs> but, but that's, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. I think we'll get it on Netflix. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to pitch Netflix and, and get it on there. Fingers right crossed, dude. <laughs> right, right up next to the Kanye documentary that I'm watching at the moment, which is, uh, which is quite cool. Um, can you talk about your personal experiences and, and breakthroughs that you've had with um, psychedelics, plant, medicine, plant medicines and sweat lodges? I wouldn't mind picking your brain a little bit about, uh, about that. And I appreciate you opening up about your you know, your burnouts. And as an entrepreneur myself, yeah, recently went through a mental burnout myself and realized that, hey, it's, uh, what for? Like it's, yeah. So I want to, I want to know your personal experiences with some of those breakthroughs that you've had. Yeah. I, I, I love to hear about that too. I mean, I don't know how much time we have, Michael. I know, um, I was late getting here, but it's, it's, I'm always fascinated to hear how people deal with when they hit the B word. And that's not the billion. That's the burnout. <laughs> um, that comes with the billion as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah because yeah. most people don't do anything, right? And Or can't. Feel like they can't, at least. Um, so I mentioned that my, my wife and I had really hit a tough spot for a whole variety of reasons. And a whole bunch of, you know, bad behaviors, bad choices, bad... Um, yeah, just, just, just badness. And the way the path to healing anything starts when you recognize there's an awareness that to recognizing that you don't like your situation and then understanding what's the behavior that's you're doing, you don't like, but then what's the underlying emotion that's causing you to react that way to create this, this outcome that you, that you're not enjoying in your life. And then once you understand that emotion, you have to ask yourself the question, why is it there? You know, a lot of people, this just stems back to childhood trauma, uh, traumatic events that are, or events that created trauma, trauma in the body. Right. And, you know, things that we behaviors that we learned, and never got rid of because we never processed that trauma correctly. And it, it ends up rearing its head later in life. My desire to be seen, to be liked, to be successful, it, you know, it's just classic issues of self-worth and where do those issues of self-worth come from? You know, will they come from parents who at the time, <laughs> you know, struggled with self-worth and then projected those onto us that, that, you know, there was value and achievement value and being a good runner. And so, you know, it, 
we all, and, and trauma is such a personal thing. Nobody's trauma is better than anyone else's. Nobody's is someone, someone might've been sexually abused and someone might've just been bullied and not just someone might've been bullied and someone might've had a parent just force them to do too many public speaking competitions, right? You cannot compare any of those traumas because we all hold them individually. And so I had, I had passed through the, I don't like how I'm behaving. I don't like the decisions I've made and I can kind of see where they're coming from, but I don't know how to deal with them, how to dislodge them from my, my body, from my mind to, to face them with empathy, you know, uh, not judgment to, to face them with love, not shame and guilt. And I, I'd heard about plant medicine. Um, and I've always been an explorer of everything. And so, you know, despite the fact that they were illegal, I, from what I could see, something that was 5,000, 10,000 years old, been used for, you know, for that long in, in our history as humanity couldn't possibly be, you know, that bad if done in the right environment. So I, I began with my wife, both together and separately, we embarked on a, a path to, to taking ayahuasca, which is an incredibly healing, powerful plant medicine. But before we just, we didn't just hop into it. Like we were through some friends, we found a shaman that we wanted to work with. And we actually met with that shaman multiple times, even before we took any plant medicine just so that they could understand what was going on for us and what might come up. And, you know, we did breath work. We did the sweat lodge. Um, we did things to just help prepare our bodies and minds for what would happen. I even, you know, we even started with a smaller dose of psilocybin, which is you know, magic mushrooms. Uh, and it became this sort of three year journey. And I can get into what happened on those individual, um, those individual experiences, if you want me to, I'm very <laughs> happy to share. But before what I'll say is on the outside of it, you know, there's always like a halo of like a month where you feel great. But if you don't integrate the lessons and, and by, you know, that, I mean, if you weren't ready to integrate the lessons that you learned on that journey, then often, you know, after a month or so, you're just kind of mostly back to, to where you were and you're feeling the itch to do another ceremony. And then the ceremony just becomes the vice or the crutch or like the finger pointing to the moon, you know, where you're mistaking the healing, the moon being the, for the finger, the, 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 the plant medicine that's, that's pointing to it. Right. And so you have, I had to be really careful about that. And, and so um, because you don't, yeah, you know, you hear about these people in the Silicon Valley do ayahuasca every two weeks. Right. And that may not be a bad thing for them. I'm not judging them, but all I'm saying is that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for, how do I heal what's in me and what it did. So when I was, uh, I'll tell you like, so the, the psilocybin was very much focused on my wife and I, and you know, the shaman, she literally made us sit face to face, like real close, Michael. 
And this is at some point, you know, probably two hours into having taken it. So we've had, we've done some individual work and she's making us look at each other in the eyes without breaking contact and just share. Because when you're in, in the medicine of psilocybin, your heart is just open, right? The ego is, is lifting. So you're not holding on to the things that you're worried about or trying to protect or trying to guard against. And so you almost can't help but let it flow. And these are some hard things and we're sitting there and the rest of the people in this, in this, uh, this medicine journey are sitting around us. So we're in the middle with the shaman and then there's this circle of support around us. And we're just bawling our eyes out and we're just talking about the things that, you know, we wish we'd said, we'd wish we'd done differently and, and, you know, all the feelings associated with that. And then it was very, very hard. Um, and then afterwards we kind of went back and just lied and lied down and, and after, and then after the whole ceremony, you know, days a week after we did discuss it, but it was so releasing that, uh, that the peace had been dislodged and we created this ability to just talk to each other more openly going forward ever since. Um, that doesn't mean things don't come up. Now the ayahuasca experience, ayahuasca is a bit deeper. That would be very, what we did with on psilocybin would be very hard to duplicate in ayahuasca. You're in a pitch black room. It's very, very, your, your eyes are very sensitive to light. And so you're on your own. And in fact, they had separated us because they didn't want us interfering with each other's experiences. And if, if, if in psilocybin, you can kind of come in and out of the experience where you're in, the work is very deep. You feel completely dislodged. You open your eyes and you feel a, a degree of normal, varying degree of normal where you're, you're aware of your surroundings. You can have a conversation like we did in ayahuasca. That doesn't happen. You are down, down, down the rabbit hole. And in ayahuasca, I ended up a lot of stuff happened, but I ended up visiting my daughter in the womb, um, which was an incredibly tough time in my life because naked was struggling. And I, and I had said, I didn't want to have a daughter. Um, I did I, not, not daughter. I had said, I didn't want to have children. And obviously that was very traumatic. We were pregnant. We were having a, a kid, right? Because I was so selfishly interested in my own success that I thought anything would derail me from that. And of course, you know, as soon as the baby's born, you, you love the child and you go on. But I went back to that very moment. Um, I don't know if it's just a memory. I don't know if I was literally there. I'm not professing some sort of space-time continuum traveling. But I, I talked to her in the womb. And I apologized. And I told her how much I wanted her and how much I loved her. And again, coming out of that, I didn't know that that was an issue I was holding on to. I had no idea. And it was just, you know, other things happened too, Michael, but it was just so healing for me to, 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 to do that. And so that's how I look at, at these medicines. I think that they're gifts. I hope for more regulation. It's coming very fast in the States, at least. I don't know about down under Canada's sort of a bit behind the States, but because it just, um, it just, again, in an, in an, in a safe environment with the right practitioner, 
it just allows you to separate the thing that's saying, I can't face that because that makes me feel bad and making me feel bad isn't good. That sort of survival egoic kick in. It just removes it and you just go and you face it. Yeah, thank you for uh, sharing those personal experiences and, um, yeah, letting us understand a little bit uh, deeper into the plant medicine. Um, the way I see it, like I'm a, I'm a massive fan of the Matrix movie, uh, always have, always will be. I think the latest one was fantastic. What it does with psychedelics or just plant medicine or any type of uh, natural medicine, it, in especially Western culture, it takes away the programming. It, for for a moment and we get to see behind the veil which is just code okay we see the the real code what which is source so it's getting back to our source um and then integrating those lessons as you said i took a lot of notes when you you were talking it's it's integrating those lessons into your daily life on on um you know dropping the ego and yeah it, it's you can see why it's been Banned, not banned, but why it's been sort of shadow banned a little bit uh, in Western cultures because it does drop the matrix. Um, I don't know if I'm right, but uh, it, for me, it sounds right and it feels right to me. Um, it sounds like a great podcast. You should start a second one totally on this yeah. theme. <laughs> yeah, I, and all those points, I've actually never had psychedelics before, um, which, yeah, it's not the right time for me, but yeah, I know in the in the future I will. And yeah, I like the idea of sweat lodges as well. You, you talk about sweat lodges. I'm a massive sauna fan, so don't have a lot of time at the moment, but uh, I can see myself uh, definitely spending a lot more time in sweat lodges. Um, I'll just in the give future. you one quick thing. It is unbelievably different in, in terms of the heat level of um yeah of the sweat lodge i thought i was going to die <laughs> Every yeah, yes, and, 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 and some people have and there's and there's some uh there's some people i'm well aware of who are a famous sort of spiritual gurus and masters who have had a lot of trouble because uh some people have died on their watch and i'm not going to name names but anyway we probably know who they are um just to wrap up we're sort of running over time but uh talk us about what you you're doing now i know you're on the talk a little bit about farm life what's that like um with the family yeah michael i you know it's part of that whole healing journey that we went on which we're still on nobody is off of it you know you're, you're always kind of touching it and, and, and dealing with it. We decided, you know, the city life wasn't for us. We wanted to be closer to nature on a daily basis, slow down. So we, we moved uh, out to a farm about an hour and a half out of the city, have chickens and a garden. And, and it's just, it's for us, it is working. And it's, it's sort of leading us in all these new directions. How I approach businesses is very different, but I'm working on a, um, specifically I'm, I'm dealing, I, I do a lot of consultation with startups now that I'm, I'm working on five or six of those, but my passion is, is seems to be moving more towards television. After that first film was complete, I wasn't sure I'd ever do another one. And, and I've just finished shooting a pilot for a series called finding nowhere, which is about rewilding ourselves and going back into nature and learning how to hunt and fish and forage and grow and build and by no means do I envision I'll live in nature full time, <laughs> but uh, this project is sort of an exploration of that inside the province of BC. 
Something's happening where I'm watching Meat Eater while I'm watching Breakfast. For no reason, I'm just watching another man hunt in the wild because (laughs) something's something's gravitating me towards that as well. So we are going through a cultural shift. There's an energy, there's a feeling, you know, people have labeled it many different things. But I think what we realize is that we need to get back to nature and we need to incorporate that into our lifestyle. And... um, I think that's 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 a that's a massive thing for mental health, physical health, and and just overall, we live in nature. We're not living with nature. Na- we live in nature. So nature is number one. We're number two, um, because when we're gone, nature is always going to be around. Um, just last before we wrap up, talk to us a little bit about your travel uh, traveling clothing travel clothing company, um, Cosine. Is it um, how's that? Is it still going? Are you still running that? Or, <laughs> yeah. Kosan is a going concern, if you will. <laughs> uh, I mean, I say that tongue in cheek. I'm fighting. I'm fighting for its survival. I, it had a tough two years during the pandemic, being a travel clothing company. We had a killer Kickstarter. You know, we did a million bucks in 30 days. Really found that proof of concept to kind of bring this back to where we started. But during the pandemic, we made all kinds of decisions, pausing the business, focusing on personal protective equipment like masks and. You know, I don't think we, looking back, we should have paused it or we should have put our dollars elsewhere, but who are we supposed to know? Right. And so, you know, we obviously watch very closely as like, you know, let's, let's get endemic here. Let's start traveling again. Just because I think the morale around how people view us would be better. So it's, it's been tough, but it's there. And and we just, we make really cool travel dresses if that's what you're, you know, that's what you need to travel in. So thanks for yeah no you business is a bet and you know you you can have a win you can have a loss but at the end of the day business is uh is a bet it's a risk but uh you wouldn't do it any other way um joel yeah i want to thank you for sort of uh being on the best pulpits podcast and you know opening up your story and sharing with us the amazing journey you've had so far and i'm sure you've got a lot more journeys and tales to tell in the future as well and definitely i want to see you on netflix uh with your documentary and obviously your pilot as well uh yeah get on tv um i think that's the next thing for you and if I'm ever down your way as well, I'll I'll go hunting with you and so come hunt, come hunt and time. do the farm when you come to Vancouver, baby. <laughs> definitely, no, it's it's on the bucket list. Definitely, I'll be spending some time uh, in the northern sort of hemisphere in, in the future. <laughs> so, Joel, uh, yeah, thanks for being on the Best Book Bid podcast. More audience, go out there, follow this man. Where, what's the best place they can sort of follow your travels and, and reach you uh, socially? Yeah, JoelPrimes.com is where I blog, and then on Instagram. Uh, joel.primus is where all of it lives the film the book the the travels the businesses it's all it's all there done perfect all right joel thanks for being a great guest and enjoy the rest of your days on the farm all right i'll speak to you soon you too mate done okay